The following podcast contains language that some people may find offensive. If you listen to this podcast with young children, you may want to skip this episode. Thank you. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Tech Girls Podcast. This is Trisha Walsh, your Tech Girls Podcast host. On this podcast, we will explore women and girls in technology. We'll hear their stories, dreams, challenges, and triumphs. Joining us on the Tech Girls Podcast today is Katie Sullivan, Senior Vice President at Yelp, leading the Customer Success Organization. Katie joined Yelp in 2007, just after its user base climbed past 1 million and the company was still raising funds for growth. We'll discuss her journey from sales account executive to her current role as SVP, participating in Yelp's growth from 3 million in revenue and climbing toward 1 billion. Welcome to the Tech Girls Podcast, Katie. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. You bet. I'm really excited for this conversation. We do love to get some background. So, Katie, if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what that was like for you. Yeah, totally. So, um, I grew up in Northern California, right here in the Bay Area, and uh, in a town called Los Altos, uh, which is smack in the middle of Silicon Valley. <laughs> and so it was an interesting place to grow up because a lot changed over the course of my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and even now when I go back down and visit the house where I grew up in, where my parents still live, um, feels like our house is this strange little bubble and the whole world around it has changed so much. Um, so anyway, I grew up, uh, you know, in California. My mom is Australian, uh, and my dad is, I think, a fourth generation Californian, which I think makes me fifth, and I'm pretty sure that that's fairly uncommon. Um, so that's... I'm first generation American from my mom's side, fifth yeah. generation Californian from my dad's. I have two older brothers, and, uh, you know, was raised the youngest of three and the only girl. Um, and, you know, I would say, generally speaking, sort of grew up with a relatively uncomplicated background in life. White, heterosexual, cisgendered woman who grew up, uh, you know, with a nice family. But that said, it wasn't without its ups and downs and moments of trials and tribulations and turbulence along the way. Thinking back to some of that time, what did you want to be when you grew up? I don't know if I can remember ever wanting to be something when I grow up. Interestingly, I think I have always been a fairly present person. I mean that less so in like the yoga namaste, I'm always very aware of my thoughts way, and more so in the uh, I'm a super extrovert and I really get my energy from other people. And when I'm in conversations, sort of nothing else in the world matters to me except for that conversation. So I think that in a lot of ways, um, I don't know if I really knew what I wanted to be when I grow up, except for... I sort of knew I wanted to explore the world, and I knew I wanted to meet a lot of people and lead an interesting life. How would you say your upbringing continues to influence your life today? I think one of the most influential ways is that uh, I was the youngest of three, like I mentioned before, with two older brothers. And my parents did a great job um, basically saying, you know... If the boys are listening to heavy metal and Katie wants to listen to heavy metal, buy her a heavy metal CD. Uh, if the boys are really into Zippos, you know, we got really into lighters and Zippos at one point and 
my brothers were into it. So if they were into it, I was into it. And they said, fine, Katie can have a Zippo collection. So I think my, my folks did a pretty good job not trying to force me into a lot of gender norms, being the only girl. And as a result, I sort of grew up with this innate sense that there oughtn't be a difference mm-hmm. between the boys and the girls in the world and, you know, going out into the world and, and getting a little older and starting to experience more double standards and more um, sort of gender influences we're all people and we all have interests and it sort of just doesn't really matter. I remember feeling a deep sense of injustice, even as a young teenager, and really feeling like I I don't understand why this is starting to diverge so much. Um, And that has really stuck with me uh, all the way through to today. And it's still something that I'm extremely passionate about trying to, you know, fight the fight and see what we can do to create, you know, stronger cultural norms, laws, etc. to create equality amongst men and women. I'm curious about your bachelor's degree in history of art and architecture. How did you get there? (laughs) So I um, studied the arts. I always growing up had a real natural knack for languages and culture and history and really enjoyed those topics in school. So uh, when I went to UC Santa Barbara, which is where I did my undergraduate degree, I bounced around a little bit in the first couple years between you know, psychology, sociology, uh, and then in the first half of my junior year, oh, and I had settled in on my uh, a history major. Then in the first half of my junior year, I went to Italy to study abroad, and I absolutely fell in love with art history. Just loved the historical context, uh, you know, being, I was in Florence, being in a city where art history was sort of alive and all, of, all around you, I just found so stimulating. And so I switched from history to art history. The good thing about switching late in the game from those two degrees is that a lot of the history sort of prereqs mapped over to art history. Um, and then I really, in the last 18 months of my degree, just poured in the, the classes to get all of the uh, required sort of credits for an art history major. Um, and I loved it. It felt like it really, I came alive academically when I made that transition to art history. So by the time senior year was wrapping up, I realized that I had only just really come alive in, in the back half of my university years in terms of kind of my intellectual curiosity. So I decided to pursue a master's degree right away. Uh, and so I applied for a master's of literature um, out in London and uh, was accepted to the program, moved to London, and I did a one-year master's degree there. So that's where I got my MLIT in ancient European art. And uh, it all sort of focused on ancient societies from Mesopotamia all the way up uh, to about the Middle Ages and early Renaissance. We're going to pause here for a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking with Katie about how she landed her first job at Yelp. This episode of the Tech Girls podcast is brought to you by all the amazing contributors to our Indiegogo campaign. We want to especially recognize our givers at the Tech Girls champion level. They are Cindy and Steve Walsh, Lauren and Fermin Mata, Sonia Dillon, Dave Walsh, and Yvette Romero Aguilera. Special thank you goes out to Jim McAway, who contributed at the Tech Girls superstar level. Thank you all for sharing our vision of bringing the stories of girls and women in technology to this podcast. Welcome 
welcome back to the Tech Girls Podcast. We are talking with Katie Sullivan, SVP at Yelp. So tell us about your first job at Yelp, including how you got it. So I finished this degree in art history, and at the time, I, while I was doing my master's degree, I sort of assumed I might just stay in academia. And I would say during my graduate degree, I was a good student, but not a great student. Um, I would say my intellectual thirst and curiosity was there, but... In terms of actually performing the tasks and research and and the type of stuff that's needed in that world, um, I wasn't amazing. I wasn't the tip top of my class. Uh, And I enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed studying the subject matter, but I sort of knew that something didn't feel quite right about staying in academia. And so uh, I also had been counseled by my mom, who she's a neuroscientist by training, and she had done her PhD at Stanford. And worked at a lab there for many years. And she sort of said, I just don't know if you're going to like academia. I just don't know if it's you. I know you so well. I don't know. If, I don't know if you're going to thrive there. So um, I decided, okay, I'm going to go get a job. So my first natural thought is get a job in art history, uh, go work at one of the auction houses. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, went around and spent a little bit of time with Christy Sotheby's and Bonham's uh, here in San Francisco and knew pretty quickly that that was not going to be the right path for me. Then I thought, okay, well, what about kind of another place where commerce and art meet? Uh, galleries. So actually, at the end of my master's degree, when I when I knew I was going to get into the workforce, I um, started working at a gallery in London where I was studying. And it only took a couple months to realize that was also not right for me. So uh, I came back to California after finishing my degree, having explored a couple of these different paths. I started exploring the world of becoming a curator and uh, had a couple interviews at the Getty down in L.A., um, as well as at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, who has a really rich medieval tapestries collection. And after meeting with a couple of folks, again, felt like I hit a brick wall and (laughs) realized that's also not what I want to do with my life. So I had a total quarter life crisis. Like, what the fuck have I done with my life? I went and I studied art history. I got this master's degree. I had this amazing experience living abroad and made amazing friends and had amazing travels, but I have nothing to show for it except for good memories and, and good life experiences. So I was feeling really bummed about that. Of course, now in retrospect, I'm like, that's more than plenty to show for it. Don't worry about it. Um, But at the time, I was very stressed. Um, So I moved back to my parents' house. I was sleeping on my parents' couch. And my mom, ever the great motivator, came over to me and said, Katie, don't worry. You can stay on this couch as long as you need to. And I immediately peeled myself up and got to the computer and posted my resume online. (laughs) She knew exactly what I did not want to do. And it was that. So, um, put my resume online. I was, had got a phone call from a woman who worked at a recruiting agency that placed sales positions. And to be honest, I sort of had zero expectations. I was like, sure. I'll go on some interviews. I mean, whatever. Uh, and she sent me on two or three interviews, most of which were horrible. And I thought it's been good interview practice, but I'm done here. Like, like I got to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Um, and she said, well, hang on. There's one more interview. I really want to send you on. It's to this company called Yelp. Have you heard of it? Of course, Yelp didn't exist internationally at that point. So I'd never heard of it. So I came, uh, and what really struck me, and it's funny because in retrospect, I now think this is a great litmus test for uh, deciding on what you want to do or where you want to work next. 
I had this great feeling walking out of the interview, which was, I want to be those people when I grow up. I met with Jed, who's mm-hmm. our COO. I met with Erica, who was one of our previous uh, SVPs at Yelp. And I just remember thinking, gosh, those were really smart, interesting, engaged, wonderful people who seem really passionate about what they're working on. I could see myself working for them. I could see myself becoming them. Got the job offer, said yes. Started in sales and failed miserably. I was horrible. I was the last person in my class. We hired 17 people in my class. I was the last person to close a deal. I was not good at a lot of the job. Uh, Luckily, I had a great manager who was very patient and really saw some potential in me and uh, really coached me effectively. Um, And it started to figure it out and got good at the role. And then the rest is history. Said yes to a lot of opportunities, moved around the country and the world. And here we are today. Was there any intimidation on your part as you began your leadership path that Yelp was beginning to be a leading tech company in the Bay Area? I wouldn't say there was intimidation. I would say two things were true at once. One, I was in the right place at the right time. And like so many things in life, it's not until you look back that you start to realize, oh, wow, that was actually a really good decision. Um, And I would love to say that I had the foresight and I knew that the local marketplace was, you know, the area for large disruption and that I knew all the venture capitalist firms and the investors that had shown confidence in Jeremy and Russ and Jeff The truth is, um, I enjoyed working here. I could see that there was growth happening on the front lines. um, And I was really ambitious. uh, And I really wanted to do well. And I really wanted to just contribute more and take on whatever responsibility was going to help, you know, fit the need of the company as it grew. Yeah, I think that the second thing that was, was true is there did come a tipping point when I realized how much Yelp was becoming part of the zeitgeist. Uh, it was, probably wasn't until 2011 or 2012. During that time period, you know, when, when it did tip and I did sort of realize just how influential this company was becoming, I was really excited about that. I, it, it bred a very large sense of pride in what I had already worked really hard to build and a very large sense of um, excitement over what was yet to come. I just did new hire training here at Yelp yesterday. And when I was talking to the new hires, I said to them, you know, make no mistake about it. When you look at brands like Disney and BMW and Apple, brands that have been around for 50, 100 years, who have done really influential things across, you know, American and international cultures, we want to be a brand just like that. And I feel that deep down in my bones. And I think that because I was a part of growing the company from the bottom up, um, that feeling is really visceral for me and it continues to be true. And so I wouldn't say there was ever intimidation or trepidation around it. I would say if anything, I sort of for the first part was unknowing. And then as it became a reality, it just bred a lot of um, pride in a really good way and, and kind of excitement and ambition. What are all the facets that make up your job today at Yelp? Things like how large is the customer success organization and other parts of your group's Um, that you're responsible for, and what are your business goals? Yeah, so I run uh, three different core functions directly. The first is customer success. Uh, For any of the listeners who are familiar with Silicon Valley and the enterprise software world, they probably know that term. 
for folks who are not as versed in that space, they may not know that term because uh, it's a burgeoning industry. And what it really is, is managing all of your customers after they've been sold a product. Um, so you know, it could also be described as account management, post-sale, customer support, customer upselling. Um, and so customer success is a really exciting part of the business uh, because it's a very complex part of the business. And uh, depending on how large and at what scale the company is operating at can sometimes actually be a, a more intensified driver of the company revenue than sales. So that was sort of the point of, time, point of time that we were at when I came to take over the organization. We realized that we had every month we were billing $45 million worth of credit cards and it was going to take us years to stack up that amount of revenue out of sales. And you know, it only took a couple of mishaps on the post-sale side to really mess up our revenue line. So um, that part of the business, the key metric that you're managing is revenue retention and revenue churn, as well as account rent retention and account churn. Each business runs it differently here at Yelp. We have um, a couple of core functions. We have a client partner organization, uh, and they are responsible for what I call expansion revenue. And that is getting in touch with our happy customers and working with them to help increase their budgets on Yelp. Um, we all, I also run the traditional customer success organization, which is more like what you would think of as customer support. Um, and that's, you know, taking phone calls and emails from customers who have questions or issues or needs. Um, and it's also sometimes putting out fires. Customers are not always happy with the service that they receive. And so, um, you know, we need folks to hop on the phones and chat with those customers and really understand what's going on. So that's the customer success side of the house. Um, I also run our revenue operations uh, organization. Customer success, by the way, is about 400 people. Um, I also run our revenue operations team, which is about 50 to 70 people. Um, they are responsible for um, helping get people compensated, uh, managing and running commissions, organizing sales territories. In a lot of ways, I almost think of them as like the guts of the sales business and the revenue business and helping enable our sales teams, our customer success teams to you know work effectively with all of our you know built up systems and inf infrastructures. Um, and then finally, I have our sales training and enablement team. Um, and that's both sales training in the traditional sense. You know, you join a sales team, you have to learn the product, learn how uh, how it's sold. Um, and it's also uh, enablement tools, which is a really exciting landscape these days. Um, that includes things like improving our CRM, our customer relationship management software, creating tools that are going to actually allow salespeople to manage their sales pipelines better, close more deals, talk more effectively with their customers. Uh, and so um, we've got a couple of really exciting you know, projects in the works with that group, and that group's relatively small right now. It's about five people across the company. One of the struggles we hear about all too often for a woman is confidence and assertiveness. What do you say to young women starting out on this topic? Oh, man, I have so much to say about this topic. <laughs> I think the first is it's really important to figure out in life and in business what's a you problem and what's a they problem. So I'll give you a good example of this. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, two days ago, and she just had a baby, and she was asking me about pumping. And she said, oh, you know, I was staying at a friend's house, and I popped into the bathroom, and I was pumping there, and, and it's a mutual friend of ours, and... And the mutual friend said to her, you know, you can just pump at the kitchen table. That's where Katie pumped. And she said, I, I had this moment where I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, Katie just pumped at the kitchen table. 
And I looked at her and I said, yeah, and I pumped at the airport terminal and I pumped at dinner. I pumped at a bar at downtown. Like, and I just had a realization that if somebody has a problem with me pumping in front of them, that's a them problem, not a me problem. My problem is that I need to, you know, live a life, be a grown woman in society and get my child fed. Their problem is if they have an issue seeing my pump parts in public or, God forbid, they might just catch a tiny glimpse of a little piece of my breast, um, which meanwhile, you know, we're putting like Maxim magazine on the front of everybody's, uh, you know, retail experience when they walk the streets of San Francisco. So um, I realized at a certain point, that's not a me problem if somebody has a problem with that. That's a them problem. And I think there's lots of places in life and business where you just have to get clear on what's a you problem and what's not. And that allows you to operate with a lot more freedom and a lot more confidence. You know, I think the second thing is explore your own story on power, on your own power, on power dynamics. Um, you know, I talked a little bit about my own story related to my brothers and I didn't go into a lot of details on how that shifted when I became a teenager, but I think you really have to not be afraid to go there, know what stories you inherited from your family of origin and which ones are serving you and which ones aren't turn the, um, lens inward, hold up a mirror and really kind of get introspective. Um, and get comfortable holding your own power. I think a lot of women are very uncomfortable holding their own power. There's no reason to be. It's a lot of fun and it's a very, you know, empowering feeling when you get to hold your own power. And then the final thing is, I, you know, you get to a point in life. I remember reading an article ages ago and I think the guy actually turned it into a book where you realize you only have a certain number of fucks to give in life. And like, you just have to be really careful not to give a fuck about the things that don't deserve your fucks. And then you have to really concentrate all of your fucks on the things that are really warranting of all of the fucks you're going to give. Um, and so it, there's a beautiful art to not giving a fuck and just deciding where your fucks are not going to go. And it's not uncommon for um, women to be socialized in a way to um, experience more empathy and to express more empathy. And so that can be a very beautiful thing that leads to amazing qualities like good communication and community building and all of that. Um, but it can also have a downside and it's a double-edged sword and it's, you know, you can take on other people's pain unnecessarily. So learning where to build calluses up and learning where to kind of let stuff go is, I mean, that's all part of the aging process. In addition to being a strong female voice in your day job, you're also a mom in a growing family. How do you strike a balance? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, so I am currently, as we're recording, 20 weeks pregnant with number two. Congratulations. Thank you. My uh, first just turned one uh, this past Sunday. So, um, yeah, we are on the path, growing the family. So, um the first thing I would say is, uh, somebody actually asked me about balance earlier today, and I said, think about balance. Think about an example of balance, watching a gymnast on a balance beam. They're not loosey-goosey, and they're not, you know, floating around. Their muscles are very tight. They're concentrating. And to strike balance, it takes effort. Like, it really does take mental effort, physical effort. It takes, you know, effort through the whole ecosystem. And so uh, I would say sometimes I'm better at it than others. I wouldn't say that I'm always perfect. I really look at like my quote unquote like balance 
as a practice, not as a checkbox. Um, and, you know, I think it's really a combination of habits and conscious living. Uh, I think there's a lot of good habits, like good mental health habits, good relationship habits, good physical health habits um, that I've established over the years um, with a lot of work. Uh, you know, wasn't always good at all of them and had a lot of help from my community, from therapists, from whoever to help um, set those up properly. And sometimes they continue to need maintenance. Um, and then just being really conscientious in maintaining a lot of those habits. You know, I think that time, stress, and happiness are the three measures uh, that I use to think about balance. So I think oftentimes when we think about work-life balance or home versus career, very often the dimension we measure it with is time. It's how much time am I spending at the office? How much time am I spending with my kids or, or in my outside life? Um, and that's one dimension. And sometimes it's very telling. And other times it's not because I've had times where I'm spending a lot of time with my kid, but I'm not happy doing it. And I've had times where I'm spending a lot of time at work and I'm not happy doing it and vice versa. So, you know, I try to combine that with um, stress and happiness and ask myself, how much stress and happiness am I experiencing along with those time slots? Um, and I try to think about how to strike balance in multiple dimensions as opposed to just with time. Um, and I would say kind of one final thought on this, which is I really believe that stress is the chasm between your values versus your actions and surroundings. So if you're doing something or in a situation that does not align with your values, it does not align with what makes you happy and like brings you joy and is your true north, that's when you feel stress. Uh, and that stress starts to dissipate. I mean, I was just talking with uh, a young woman who's a young mom who's asking me about this literally an hour ago. And she said, I feel so guilty. I only spend two hours a day with my kid. And I said, I spend two hours a day with my kid because he goes to bed at 6 p.m. I'm an amazing mom during those two hours. And by the way, when I was on, for me personally, when I was on maternity leave, I wasn't happy. I was really struggling. I was like reaching for a glass of wine at 2 p.m. because I was feeling frayed at the edges. So I had to know myself and I had to get in touch with myself and I had to know what made me whole. Things that make me whole are work. I really, I love work. I actually really love it and enjoy it. Even when it's hard and stressful, it's not perfect all the time. I love exercise. I need exercise on a consistent basis or I will go crazy. So I had to really get in touch with like, where, where am I going to spend that time that's going to align me with my values that make me whole? And my two hours a day right now with my kid I'm on the Monday through Fridays is perfect. I love those two hours. They're incredible for me. I The phone is down. I have so much joy. He has so much joy. I'm not frustrated with him. I'm not stressed. Um, and so, you know, I think it's all about kind of knowing yourself and making sure you close that gap between where your values are and how your time is being spent or the surroundings that you're putting yourself in. We're going to pause here for a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Katie about projects outside of work that she's continuing to pursue, particularly around moms. Hello, this is Trisha, your Tech Girls podcast host. I wanted to let you know about a great holiday gift idea, Super Cool Scientist Number 2, a story and coloring book celebrating today's women in science, written by Sarah McSorley and illustrated by Yvonne Page. You can find it on Amazon. That's Super Cool Scientist 2 on Amazon. Happy Holidays! 
Welcome back to the Tech Girls podcast. We are talking with Katie Sullivan, SVP at Yelp. Are there projects or other pursuits you've begun as a part of supporting moms who also work? I am a really big advocate of women in technology, women in business, women in leadership. And so a lot of that has expressed itself here at Yelp. Uh, So I'm the executive sponsor of Women at Yelp, and I do a lot of kind of events and workshops and stuff through that group. I'm also a member of uh, Moms at Yelp and Parents at Yelp. And a lot of stuff that I do there um, is really geared around how to help women and parents figure out uh, how to do exactly what we were just talking about, striking that balance and how to grow their careers. In addition, I I do take on um, a lot of mentorship opportunities, both internally at Yelp as well as externally, Um, some kind of more formal and some less formal. And then I also have actually a new business that is all about supporting moms uh, called Molly Jones. I've started it with a friend of mine who's a young mom uh, in Mill Valley, the town that I live in, where we are teaching moms about the use of cannabis for stress relief and medicinal purposes and recreational purposes. Uh, Now that cannabis is legal in California, I think a lot of people are still a little anxious about it and there's a lot of stigma associated with it and yet a lot of people I think would love to not be having two or three glasses of wine on a Thursday night and feeling crummy the next day Um, and so kind of learning that you don't need to self-medicate with wine and uh, kind of learning all the different uses of cannabis and the ways that it can you know help help moms relax help them have fun and help them uh, enjoy their lives. You talked already a little bit about women at Yelp, moms at Yelp, mentorship, um, your outside enterprise. You're very visible um, as a leader at Yelp. Are these inherent Katieisms or part of Yelp culture or some of both? I would say it's uh, like a lot of both. When I was trying to think about how to answer this question, I thought, I don't really know where one ends and the other begins. <laughs> I think I've also just been part of the company for so long uh, that... We're in each other's DNA. Yelp's in my DNA. I'm in Yelp's DNA. Um, and so, you know, I think what's interesting about this is I'm a very transparent person. Uh, and I am very, you know, keen on on not enforcing social norms around shame. And so I'm happy to share, you know, the things that are good, the things that are bad, the things I've struggled with, the things that have worked for me. And I've really kind of shared my personal journey as I've become a more and more visible leader at Yelp. Um, And so I think that that has made its way into my leadership style. uh, And I think that in turn has made its way into a lot of Yelp's DNA. Uh, And so I would say it's some funny combination of the two. (laughs) We've seen an increase in women entering technology roles. What are some of the things we could do to attract more women to enter the field? Man, I will give one that I just love, which is very tactical, uh, and that is the shine theory. Uh, I think this originally came out of um, the Obama campaign and administration, where young women who were working on the campaign 
decided that they were going to start taking uh, their moments in the spotlight to spotlight and shine other women. Uh, and as a result, more and more women kept making their way into and up in the campaign and then in the administration, etc. Um, and I really try to live by that to the extent that I can. If I get an opportunity in a meeting to spotlight and throw some shine to a woman in the room or a woman who works for me or a woman who I saw do something great, um, I really try to take time to vocally take like take that minute and say it and say it to the biggest stakeholders, say it to our CEO, say it to our CFO. Um, and I think that, you know, we as women can keep doing a lot of that for each other and keep lifting each other up. I'm a big fan of lift as you climb as you're going, figure out who else you can kind of bring up with you uh, and vice versa. Um and, you know, I mentioned before that I'm I'm fairly passionate about mentorship. Um, I really, really like mentoring, you know, high potential, high talent individuals. Um, and I, you know, sometimes go out of bounds to do that. And I will get personal with people and I'll say, you know, hey, here's something that I experienced that was like really negative that, you know, was sort of unique to me being a woman. I want to help you avoid that. And here's what I advise. And here's how you should find those things. And sometimes it really does mean like saying the things that you're air quotes, not supposed to say, or, you know, talk about some of those things that you're not supposed to talk about, but don't be afraid to do that and be fearless in kind of coaching and mentoring women through so that we can all be in positions of leadership and then make the world a better place for women and men and whoever to be coming through the ranks. And, you know, I think that, that the biggest thing is, I mean, just like in terms of advice that I often give to people, it's just stick with it and know how meaningful it is to be a woman who stays in the workforce, who strives for leadership, who strives for big roles, and know that the most important thing any of us can be doing is just be living the life and modeling the way and being a role model. So know how important it is, even when it's tough on those rough days, that you're out there, you're being who you are, you are in the workforce, you're setting an example, and just know how important that is. I end most of the interviews with one question, and I have a feeling this isn't going to be as simple for you. But the question is, tell me about a piece of art that has had an influence on you. <laughs> with all your art history and architecture oh background, gosh, it yes. may not be a single, maybe a time period. Oh, you know, however, goodness. However I mean, you I love Romanesque architecture. I love the evolution of Romanesque into Gothic architecture. I love medieval triptychs. I am going to go a little bit cheesy and personal uh, and a little closer in memory and history. So my husband and I just recently renovated our home. We had this big open wall that we originally, when we laid out the designs for the, the house, we have a giant yellow couch. And we said, this is the room the giant yellow couch is going to go in. And we're going to have this big, huge white wall. Uh, and you can walk in and out of a door on either side. And our whole intention was it's going to be like a gallery wall where you can sort of enter and exit on either side. And we've got this big yellow couch and we're going to find a piece of art and hang it. We spent probably almost a year trying to figure out what to hang there. We both love um, mid-century uh, home design. We're very inspired by like Danish mid-century design, but we also both love modern architecture and modern interior design. 
So we, you know, looked at a bunch of those. We both love really quirky and whimsical things, like little animals. We have an animal, like a fake game wall on one of our walls. It's all these colorful animal heads, you know, made by artists from around the world. So we kept going back and forth and back and forth and saying, geez, what should we do? What should we do? And we found um, this young artist, guy in his 20s, based out of L.A., he had been working in a corporate environment here in San Francisco for one of our friends. Uh, our friends was his manager. And uh, our friend had been saying, hey, I've got this awesome guy who's working for me, um, but he's this great artist and he really wants to pursue a career in art. And I think I'm going to tell him to leave the corporate environment and go pursue a career in art. So he did. And the guy moved down to L.A. and... Um, we commissioned him, and I don't think he'd really had a commission before that, um, or at least, you know, nothing you know to write home about. And so um, we commissioned him to make a huge painting uh, that now hangs on our wall, and it's of Mount Tam, which is the mountain, right, that we overlook from uh, our home in Mill Valley. Um, and it's got these really vibrant colors, and, you know, he really likes listening to music while he paints, and there's sort of these abstract lines that in different colors that come together to make the mountain. Um, and it sort of has become this symbol of, you know, we have this beautiful home, which hopefully we'll live in for many years or forever. Um, but even if we leave the home, I feel like this painting has really come to represent this time in our lives of moving to Mill Valley, finally putting our roots down because we kept moving all around the country and the world up until now. Finally having a baby, we went through a lot of infertility before we were able to stay pregnant and have Axel, our first baby. And I feel like this painting was sort of like when we hung it on the wall, it felt like this hanging of this moment in time. And the fact that it was made for us with a personal connection and it sort of brings a lot of our interior design influences together um, kind of makes it a special piece for us. Thank you, Katie, for being on the podcast and bringing all your energy, I mean all of your energy, into this conversation. Thank you so much. The music you are enjoying right now is composed by Susan Davis Warren and recorded by Matt Sebaslian for the Tech Girls Podcast.